the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Introducing Wing Commander Retired Michael McStone. Mick joined the Air Force as an apprentice in 1968. He became an electrical fitter at Williamtown, working on Mirage and Sabre aircraft. In 1971, he went to Butterworth, Malaysia, working on search and rescue Hueys. This was his first involvement with helicopter aircrew. Most were Vietnam veterans. In 1975, Mick was selected for pilot training. He was then posted to United Nations Emergency Force 2, flying helicopters on peacekeeping duties in the Sinai Desert. After that, Mick continued flying helicopters in Australia until he was trained as a flying instructor for new pilots. He then became a flying instructor on Hueys and the newly introduced Squirrel Chopper. In 1985, there were more helicopter adventures in the Sinai Desert, but this time as an instructor. Following this, Mick was posted to Fort Ructor, Alabama, as one of the first two Black Hawk instructors, and then to introduce the helicopter into the RAAF at 9 Squadron. Mick resigned from the Air Force in 1990 and took up a position with Lloyd Helicopters as a search and rescue captain at Williamtown flying Bell 212 helicopters. He was recruited to the active reserve as an operations officer and range safety officer. In October 2001, Mick rejoined the Air Force and took up various positions in the air transport world, including Commanding Officer 285 Squadron Richmond. 285 Squadron was a new concept. The squadron's responsibility was to conduct all training, both ground and air crew, that occurred at Richmond. Age retirement forced Mick to leave the Air Force in April 2006. He was again recruited for full service in 2007 as Operations Officer C-130s in Iraq and Afghanistan. He was farewelled from the RAAF on the 1st of April 2018, 50 years and two and a half months after joining and one day before his 67th birthday. Mick, it is a great joy to be able to chat to you. How are you today? Yes, I'm well, thank you. You joined in 1968. Can you remember why you joined? What was the significance about the Air Force? Well, I was a, um, a Western Suburbs kid in Sydney. The vast majority of us were going to be tradesmen like our fathers, and it was an option. I think um, Dad had been in the Army during the war, and he always thought the service life was a good one, and they offered apprenticeships in those days. So along with uh, many of my school friends, because we left in uh, year 10 or fourth form, as we called it, and um, all applied for apprenticeships, and that interested me, uh, the Air Force and, and aeroplanes, I suppose, at that stage. So when you went in, was the apprenticeship as an electrical fitter? No, that's what we did. So we did six months as general service training, if you like. Yeah. And then we applied for different trades, and I applied to be an electrical fitter. Whilst you were in the Air Force? Yes, whilst I was in the Air Force, yeah. Initially, we just applied to be apprentices in the Air Force, and then you uh, were put into a different uh, a different trade as you went through that six months. So after the first six months, we then went into our actual 
uh, trade apprenticeship from there on in. And what was that for you then after that six months? It was electrical fitter. And And that's the trade I went to. Okay. And so whilst, all right, you're now an electrical trade fitter in the Air Force, what kinds of things were you therefore tasked to do? Once I finished my apprenticeship, we worked on aeroplanes or we worked on aircraft components. So I first went to Williamtown working in what we referred to as the top shop. In other words, the uh, where all the overhauls of things like generators and all that uh, type of uh, electrical equipment was done. And we also serviced aircraft. We did major servicings on aircraft themselves when they came in, and I did the obviously electrical side of, uh, of those things. Yeah, but other friends of mine went to work on in the engine section, for example. There was a big engine section at Williamtown, which is where I went, that worked on the... Mirage and the Sabre engines in those days, and there was an electrician there, and he's a he's a good mate of mine, the fellow that went there. So, yeah, we worked on aircraft in a variety. Some people worked in electronics workshops. So, so that makes that does that make you then part of crew? Not crew. We, we were ground crew. We part, weren't part of an air crew. The air force didn't work that way. We were just part of a uh, of a ground crew, part of a section. I was part of electrical section at Williamtown initially. And then 12 months later, I was part of an electrical section at Firescotton in Fairburn in Canberra. And what were the steps leading from that to being part of something that actually flies? Do you mean the step to me becoming a pilot later on? Yes, yes. How did that occur? Well, I'd I'd done several years. I'd been posted to Malaysia as an electrical fitter. I'd come back and and one year in my uh, annual reports that everyone gets, I was encouraged by my boss at the time um, that I should go back to uh, school, do my year 12 or my high school certificate and apply to become an engineer. They were seeking people from the uh, from the hangar floor, if you like, tradesmen, to move yeah. on into the commission ranks. So I thought, well, that's a good opportunity. Um, it's not that I wasn't enjoying what I was doing, but uh, I thought that's a good opportunity. So I went back to night school in Canberra. Um, and did the year 12 in one year as it was done in those days and um, realised that during that year, because I knew a lot of the air crew at Fire Squadron at the time, because uh, we worked very closely with air crew on, in the helicopter squadrons. Yeah. So I knew a lot of them and, and they, encouraged, they said to me, well, you know, if you do these, you could apply for a pilot's course as well as the engineering course. <laughs> and so the pilot's course appealed to me. <clears throat> so, so that's what I did. So at the end of 19... 19- 75, I uh, I continued with my night school to get a couple more subjects into 76, but I applied for a pilot's course at the start of 1976 and uh, and away I went from there. Okay, well, let's just go back a few steps, back to 1971. Was it that the year that you were sent to Butterworth? Uh, At the end of 71. So I think it was actually January 72. In 1971, about the middle of 71, I left Williamtown to go to Fire Squadron, to the Helicopter Squadron. Yeah. Right. And the reason was I was then going to go to Butterworth. They needed an electrical fitter. They knew they would need one early the next year at the search and rescue flight where there were two helicopters. And they were Hueys, yes? Hueys, correct. Yeah. Uh, and they needed. They knew they were going to need an electrical fitter and there were, were none that um, maybe there were none that Fire Squadron wanted to go or something. So I was asked at Williamtown, would I be interested? Yes, please. Yes, please. (laughs) Well, most of us went to Williamtown in those days wanting to go to Butterworth, I mean, to Malaysia. That was why most of us went to Williamtown. It was a stepping stone to Malaysia. And, of course, a couple of my friends 
were on their way already. So I went to uh, Fairburn, and I was really only there six months, and it was to learn the electrical side of the Huey. Um, and, of course, I was pretty busy in that time. I did all the courses very quickly and uh, did a lot of travelling around with the aircrew. To be honest, that's how I got involved in the helicopter business. That's how I got involved in the work life of someone in the helicopter system was through that that six months. So then the end of 71, start of 72, I went to Malaysia in, in to, and to work at the search and rescue flight at Butterworth. So can you just take us through what it, what was a day like doing that job in the early 70s in, in uh, Malaysia? Uh, well, it was it started like most other days. Everyone met. Um, we all got together. We were a very small um, place, a very small unit. There were only, uh, well, all up, I think there were six aircrew, um, five aircrew, and about the same number of technical people. So we, we got together in the morning and we got the aircraft ready for the day's work. There were two aircraft there, two Hueys there. One would be uh, on the immediate standby and then one would be on a secondary standby and often that would be the aircraft if it had unserviceabilities that we'd be working on. So we'd get the primary aircraft ready in our specific trades and um, get it ready for the uh, for the aircrew. And then if there was work to be done on the other aircraft, then that's what we did for the rest of the day, the technical mm. Mick, look, I, I, I can't even hold a hammer and, and work it properly. So not understanding the, the whole notion of working on a helicopter or a mirage or whatever, what kinds of things as an electrical fitter or as the electrical engineer as you were, did you have to do to the helicopter when it came back from a flight? What was your job? Well, we'd fix anything that was unserviceable. Let, if it came back and there were components, electrical components uh, that were unserviceable, we'd I would take them out, probably take them to a workshop and fix them if we could, or we'd replace them. The great thing about being in a small unit like that was I wasn't just an electrical fitter. I'd been cross-trained into all the other trades, so I could do change instruments, I could do the instrument work, I could help with the uh, the engine fitter in doing work on the engine. So whether it be repairs to the engine, repairs to the ignition system, uh, the airframe fitter, whether it be repairs to the uh, components of the aircraft, sometimes there'd be main rotor blades that had to be changed because they just had a life of type, they'd reached the end of their service and they yeah. had to be changed. So it was whatever was done, really. I mean, uh, in many ways, it's like someone who works on a car, you know, it just happened, <laughs> to, be, it just happened to be an aircraft, that's all. Yeah. So I, I, yeah. Those, types of, those types of things. Yeah, that's yeah. the ignition for me. So press that button in the yeah, car. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> Uh, and, and that would be a good example. If that didn't work, then we'd go out and try and find out and, fi- and try and fix it. So we'd fault find it. We'd find out why that component didn't work. Why didn't that ignition system work? Sure. It sort of, yeah. And so, it was the same on any aircraft for any of the technical people of those days. Yeah, the same. I imagine. I imagine then you have a, a rather positive attitude towards what the Air Force provided in those early days for a, a person just out of year ten or fourth form to actually provide an apprenticeship that gives you a career, albeit in the Air Force, but you have a career that you would not necessarily have had out of the Air Force. Is, is that a, a good thing that they were doing? Oh, I think it was fantastic. I mean, we had, I can't remember exactly, about 120 fellows joined as apprentices on my intake, and I was number 22 intake, and uh, I can't remember, but maybe four or five didn't finish the two and a half years at Wagga. But, yeah, it was a great career. People went all over the country. Most people went to um, Richmond and, uh, and Williamtown. 
Some people went to bases in West Australia and Victoria and stuff like that, but most of us. But it was a career. It was something we could look forward to, uh, you know, um, because it it was just – I I think we all looked to careers in those days. Even my my school friends that might have gone to the local railway in Sydney that were hiring a lot of apprentices, they went there looking that that would be their career. I think that was just the way we looked at things in that late 60s um, part. And everyone was the same. You looked at it as being your career. Yeah. uh, To me, it gave me the opportunity, and I think one of the things that – I was excited about, it gave me the opportunity to travel. I mean, I didn't want to stay in Western Sydney for the rest of my life. So, uh, yeah, and, of course, here I was a couple of, two or three years after leaving school and I was in Malaysia. So, you know, it gave me those great opportunities and, of course, the opportunities to travel around Australia. Of course. When when did you get to meet air crew uh, regarding Vietnam? Uh, when I was at Fire Squadron, primarily. When I was at Williamtown, when I left Wagga, I mean, Vietnam was uh, was in full swing, of course, still. There were very few there that I knew. And working there on the in the fighter area, which is where I was, in the Sabre and Mirage area, the air, ground crew and air crew didn't have as close an association as they did in the helicopter squadron. So it was when I went to Fire Squadron, most of the air crew that were there had returned from Vietnam. Um, and uh, and it was during that time and into the next year that the decision was made that Vietnam would finish. Yeah. Then, of course, when I went to Malaysia, all of the air crew there had returned from Vietnam. In fact, two of them had been in Malaya before Vietnam. Right. So, yeah, um, yeah they were, you know, been around, unfortunately, of course, most of those guys are not with us anymore. But um, so I had a close association with those people. Mm. And so it was really at Fire Squadron that mo- And a lot of the people who were there at Fire Squadron when I first got there were waiting to go. Yeah, sure. Time. And now, what, what and did. Many of them didn't go because it, it finished, but a lot were waiting. What did the Vietnam people that you work with, what did they talk about? Well, they didn't talk about much at all unless you asked them. I mean, some did. There's always some people who talk about it, what they did, why they were there, what they thought of it, those types of things people would say. But I don't think, I can't remember any any um, a violent objection to it or any praise for it. It was just a job that they did. That that was the way they looked at it, most of them. They were sent there to do it and, and they did it. Yeah, sure. So, uh, but many of them didn't talk about it at all. Let's go, to, let's go to 1975 then, and you're selected, as you said, for pilot training, and you yep. end up being posted to, I believe, the United Nations Emergency Force 2, is that correct? Yeah, that's, that, that was in uh, 1979. So after I did my pilot's course, I went back to Fire Squadron. I've been posted in and out of Fire Squadron lots of times over my career, but I went back to Fire Squadron which I think a lot of people saw as a bit odd because I knew a lot of the maintenance people there and here I was now one of the pilots. But nonetheless, I went. So I stayed there. I, I uh, advanced through the category system. I became a CCAT captain. Um, and in 1979, I then went to Egypt, to the United Nations Emergency Force 2, which was the force that was established as the uh, separating force, if you like, between the Egyptians and the uh, and the Israelis, Israelis, yeah, following the seventy three war. So yeah, yeah. So and it was it, it was for peacekeeping. A, a peacekeeping. It, was a peace, it was a peacekeeping force exactly. It started. The funny thing is, Fire Squadron left to go to Egypt the same month that I left Fire Squadron to go on parts course in in the middle of nineteen seventy six, <laughs> and then I went uh, towards the end of that peacekeeping force in nineteen seventy nine. 
There, there seems to be a thread of similarity in your career. We, we, have, we won't get to it in detail now, but at the end of your career, you're in and out, the, the, you resign, you get back in, you resign again, you get back in. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of that happening. Yeah, a lot of that. Um, just the helic- how did the helicopters stand up in the desert of Egypt? What were they like? Oh, those, those ones stood up very well. The Huey is a, a robust, uh, tough sort of an aircraft. I mean, we, we didn't encounter any more problems there than we did in Australia. The only main issue with them was erosion on the leading edge of the rotor blade as it spun around in that sandy environment. Mm. But we, they all had a tape. Yeah, I don't know. there was a special sort of tape, but there was a tape put along the leading edge and it would take the abrasive force of the sand, if you like, and that was replaced on periodically. That tape was replaced periodically. But apart from that, the aircraft stood up very well. I mean, they got a bit more sand in the intakes, but they had sand filters on them. So they, they, they lasted very well in that sort of environment. So you're pretty proud of the Huey, I imagine. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, most helicopter pilots are happy if they've got Huey hours in their logbook. Yeah, so it, it, they, they work very well. And, of course, it happened again in the 80s. We were there in the same part of the world again, and they, and they did the same thing. They did the same job and just really just kept going, just kept going, yes. It did no offer to buy one when you when you left the air force. No, no, no. no I'm only, I'm joking. Yeah. And, and how? What was it like in Sinai with the the citizens of that country in terms of how they approached the Australians and vice versa? Do you mean in Egypt? In the in Egypt, in Egypt. Yeah. Uh, we seemed to get on pretty well because we lived in a small Egyptian town right on the edge of the Suez Canal, um, Ishmaelia. And while we didn't have direct daily contact with them, not all of us, um, yeah, we seemed to get on all right with them. We I can't remember any conflicts or anything like that. So, but we didn't have a day to day working relationship with the um, the local population. Some of our staff did, like the catering side people. They might have had a direct contact, but most of us didn't. We just went to work, caught the caught our little buses to work, and went flying or whatever we did that day, and then went back mm. to where we lived. And um, and we were so we we're isolated. The Australian unit there, which numbered I think forty five or forty six, we didn't live with the bulk of the United Nations. Sure. So. Yeah. So the relationship then with the crew, the Australian crew, well, obviously would be pretty close. Oh, yeah, very much so. Yeah, we're, we're one big family. Everyone um, got on very well. Everyone looked after one another. Um, yeah, because people would get uh, sick or yeah, ill in that time and everyone would look after them. Um, if someone was having a bit of a down time because they're away from home, then people would certainly pull together and, and look after them. There's no doubt. I can't ever remember any serious conflicts. Obviously, if you have all those people together for that length of time, you're going to have some some rough interactions. But I can't ever remember. I can't remember anything serious happening. Yeah. Would you say that that is one of the enduring strengths of the Air Force? Well, any service, but let's stay with the Air Force. That it is because of your postings, where you go, working together, relying on each other. There is a great. It's almost like a family. Is that is that a quality of strength for the Air Force? I was asked when I when I did leave at my um, going out morning tea in Richmond, why did I stay so long? And the answer is simple: it's because of the people. Uh, yeah, the people that do work together, and it's in places like Egypt and in the smaller units where you really see that happen. Yeah, people who would be away from home, like at Egypt, 
other people in the squadron would make sure that their wives and families were okay. So it is that it is that uh, that bond that you have with people, mm. and you know if your friends away what they're going through, and so you try and help out. There's no doubt about that, and I saw that all through my career. Um, it's most noticeable in those smaller deployed units. You see it more, but it's there even uh, even back in Australia on the big bases. Um, so, yeah, there's no doubt that that's what um, was one of the enduring things that I will always remember, and that's why we make such good friends. Yeah, unfortunately, so. we, unfortunately, we end up scattered all over the country, but <laughs> that's why we make such good friends. Is yeah, well, that, that's the beauty of that's the beauty of social media now. You can actually yeah, yeah. keep in touch with someone no matter where they are. Um, yeah. So I imagine then, for when you, when you see some another person in a uniform, an RAAF uniform, immediately there's a connection with that person, male or female. Oh, there is. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, there's no doubt. There's a connection. You know, you, you understand where they are. I mean, the world's changed, you know. I mean, technology and all that has changed. What those people have in their head versus what I had in my head when I was, you know, 25. But, yeah, there's a lot of things that are similar. There's a lot yeah. of things the similarities are there. You, you talk about being a very proud day uh, when you were promoted to corporal. Can yeah. you tell us what led up to that and what what made it such a proud day? Well, I think it was recognition that I was I was making uh, I was making progress. I mean, uh, it was recognition that the work I'd done in the years leading up to that was being recognised by the system. I mean, off, off my apprentice course, I think I might have been the second person promoted uh, to corporal. So that in itself was recognisable. Some Someone thinks that I'm doing a good job. You know, I worked where at Williamtown, I'd worked in Malaysia, and I, I was obviously back in fire squad as an electrician between Malaysia and going on pilot schools. So I think it was that recognition that, that you were making progress. It was the first real promotion for a, uh, for a non-commissioned person, that promotion mm. to corporal. Yeah. How how supportive were the uh, the officers, the people above you, in terms of encouraging you to progress? Oh yeah, very much so. Especially in, as I said, the the units like the helicopter squadrons. Now I didn't really spend a lot of time in, like in three squadron or in a fighter squadron as such. But in the helicopter squadrons, they were very much like that. Um, when I was going through my schoolwork. That, the, the pilots that I knew, the air crew, the ground crew, the, the uh, crewmen that I knew were all very supportive. And they, they would all give advice and give encouragement. It, you know, um, I, I didn't find anyone who, um, who who was detrimental to it. Put it that yeah, way. Mick, maybe you can might be able to explain that. Um, we take a pilot in a jet as opposed to a crew in a helicopter. What is it you think makes the, the helicopter group so much closer more quickly than a pilot in a jet by him or herself. Well, I think you could um, you could then to go away on a on a task or an exercise. You go away and you work together and you live together all the time. Um, that tends not to happen as much with the fighter squadrons. They will deploy to let's say they go to Townsville, and the the aircraft stays on the base. The ground crew do their work, and the pilots go to where they go. In the helicopter squadrons, that doesn't tend to happen. You'll be away with a small crew, maybe four or five. I didn't. I led. I didn't exercise in West Australia. I was the aircraft captain. I had three other air crew, and I had three ground crew. And for the whole six weeks, there was us. 
Some of the time we were living on bases. Some of the time we were living in tents. Some of the time we were living in a in a motel in, in all that period as we moved around. But there was the six of us. So, and you help out. You know, at the end of the day when things need to happen, the aircraft needs to be refuelled or whatever it is, everyone helps out. Mm, mm. And, and I just don't think that happens as much in the fighter squadrons. It probably doesn't happen in the C-130 squadrons either, but um, it, it was just that very close bond of people. Yeah. I'm just wondering, tell me if you think I'm wrong, because a pilot in a jet, it, it, that person is by themselves most of the time in the air, whereas in a, in a helicopter there is a crew and everyone in that crew is dependent on each other to make that device work properly. Uh, look, there, there's no doubt about that. You know, um, it, it doesn't mean that pilots in helicopters are better people than pilots in jets or anything like that. It's just a different environment yep. that they're in, a different environment. And and I probably noticed it as well from my perspective when I instructed at Pierce on the Mackie, the same, the, the sort of the fighter world came out then because I would fly, come back and leave and leave the aircraft to the ground crew. Yeah, so it, yeah. To me, in a similar way, that happened when I did that did that role. I think that's all it is. It's just a different environment. Tell us about your experiences as an instructor. How supportive? What kinds of things did you do that made you a good instructor? Um, I think, first of all, I think I was a better instructor on helicopters than I was on the Mac. <laughs> okay, um, but um, I, I think I've got fairly good communication. I think I've got. Uh, I don't think I frighten students, and uh, all of us who've been through pilot training have had the experience where an instructor is a bit scary, um, and I'm, you know, I know that that's the case. I don't think I frighten students. I think I had a relaxed manner with them. Uh, I think I had knowledge to impart, and in the main, I think I I, uh, I did that reasonably well. I mean, I instructed for a long time, both in the Air Force and out sure. of the Sure. So, yeah, well, I think that was uh, the main thing. Uh, here's, the, here's the here's the $64,000 question then. You've got someone, you're instructing someone and you know they're not going to work. How do you, they're not going to succeed. How do you let that person down? What do you say? Oh, well, you've, got, you've got to be honest with them to start with. You've got to, you've got to try and find out why they're not going to succeed. That's the big challenge and maybe try and overcome that issue. But if at the end of the day you're just not going to do it, you've just got to be honest with them. You've just got to say, look, you know, this is just not working. Uh, these are the problems you've got. We've tried it over and over again. I mean, there's all sorts of methods of giving uh, giving feedback and you just try and employ them. But I think honesty is, 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 the, uh, is the first thing. Just well, otherwise, otherwise you put them at risk, their life at risk, and anyone that's going to fly with them at risk. Well, 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 you do. You know, you do. You've just got to be straightforward as you go. Yeah. And you I've had, had some of those students over the years. There's no doubt about that. And what about those that are really excellent? And yeah. Well, what, how does that make you feel? The ones that are really excellent are a bit of a worry for someone like me who's, uh, who's not really excellent when it comes to that. We would have some students at Pierce sometimes that were a bit nerve-wracking for instructors to fly with because they're skilled in the air. Well, I mean, once again, you just approach it the same way. You know, you just do whatever you can yeah. um, uh, for them. Uh, there's other techniques. I mean, you can change instructors, you know, for the ones who are struggling and the ones who are really good. You can... Try them with different instructors. Different instructors work better with different students. So is that at a student's request or is that the instructor who makes no, that decision? Generally at the instructor's request. I mean, there's probably been cases over the years where a student has requested a change, but mostly it'll be 
be at the instructor's request, yeah, look, I'm struggling with this guy or girl. I mean, there were no girls when I instructed, but these days, of course, there is, which is a good thing. But, um, look, I'm struggling with this person. I just can't get it. Um, ask someone else who you knew was a more experienced instructor, perhaps. You know, uh, how about you go flying with them for a couple of flights and see how, how you go there. Yeah, well that, that cross-fertilisation is, is really good. You've, you've met a couple of sirs that have impressed me. I'd like you to tell us about them. You met Sir Richard Williams. How did that happen and what was because, it like? Because I was on number 100 pilot's course. Now, that's not 100 since Sir Richard Williams did his pilot's course, but that's 100 since they started counting, which I think was in 1948. And uh, because I was on number 100, generally at the start of the phase at Perth, which is about eight months or so before you finish, you, you can, uh, as a student body, you can put a request up as to who you would like as your reviewing officer. And often people will do it who might have an uncle or a father or some close relation who's a senior officer. Well, of course, we were number 100. We asked for Sir Richard Williams. And, uh, you know, regard as the father of the Air Force and all that sort of stuff. And, of course, the... The powers that be at Pierce at the time went, oh, well, we don't know whether that's going to happen or not. But <laughs> apparently, uh, and we sent him a letter and we sent him a copy of our of our pilot badge, and he was very keen, and so over he came. And he, uh, he reviewed the parade. He presented those of us who won prizes with our prize. He handed all of us you know, our wings on parade and that sort of stuff. And it was terrific. And we sat around. We, we then sat in the... Uh, in the officers' mess with him and, and, and chatted about what was life was like. And, yeah, he talked about how it was when, when he learned to fly. He, he obviously came to our official dining in night um, and he was just a pleasant man to talk to. Yeah. yeah. And he was well in his 90s at that stage, of course. And um, so, yeah, it, it was just a pleasant experience. But that's how it happened. We meeting, asked, meeting a legend is, is always yeah, rather right, special. Right. Yeah, and those... Have photos with him and things like that. You know, uh, it's it's just a good thing. So yeah, yeah. there there are unless there's an emergency, there aren't many helicopters that land in Government House. <laughs> now, Sir Roden Cutler and Roden. Government House. How did that all occur? Well, he was leaving his job as the Governor of New South Wales. He was finishing up, um, and so the Air Force was farewelling him with a luncheon at Glenbrook at their yeah, Air Command at Glenbrook. And so he had to get from Sydney to Glenbrook and back. And I was, uh, yeah, one of the more senior captains uh, down at Fire Squadron and I was tasked to, to, to do the flight. So I took a Huey up. We landed in the grounds of Government House there in Sydney. I went over into, into Government House and, of course, met, you know, did all the, was told what to say and what to do and what not to do and all that sort of stuff. And uh, Andy came and we took him up to Glenbrook while they were having lunch, I think yeah, we probably went back down to Richmond and got fuel or something and then went back and picked him up and took him back into Government House. And he was he, he was just another fella, you know. He was yeah. just so yeah. relaxed and easy and, and I'm sure anyone who met him throughout, throughout his life probably would have realised that, that um, he chatted and talked to everybody. Uh, so it was just one of those things. I was tasked to do it. Yeah. When I was yeah. one, of, one of the great governors of New South Wales, in Absolutely. my opinion. Yeah, well, yeah. My, my experience with him that day, which was, what, uh, an hour's flight each way or something, uh, certainly uh, said that to me, yeah, that he was just a nice, nice person. 
who who did they have? How what sort of permission did you have to get to actually f- fly through Sydney airspace and land in Government House? Was that just something the RAAF did, or was there? Yeah, it, it was something that we didn't land in Government House often, but to fly through the airspace, we put in the normal sort of air traffic re- requirement uh, flight plans and things like that. But then, uh, as flying as military category, you get some advantages that. Um, non-military category get, like normally a Huey would be too big an aircraft. If you see the helicopters flying around Sydney, they're smaller. So flying is military category. You get some advantages over the Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the civilian world. So, yeah, but it was just a normal sort of process and we told everyone um, where we were going and who we were carrying and and, and that sort of stuff. And, of course, the air traffic is new once I left Government House, who I had on board. And and so, um, yeah, it was just done through the normal process. Yeah, fair enough. Can you compare for us the Huey and the Squirrel? Well, um, I, I, I guess uh, I instructed on both and flew both, and they both have their place. Now, the Squirrel turned out to be a very good aircraft for basic training. There was no doubt about that. It was different to the Huey. The Huey was, um, well, how do you describe it? The the US Army used to call the Huey a slug. And, you know, while that sounds derogatory, it was just, you know, a bit of a lump that moved around. The Squirrel was much uh, dancier. It jumped around. It was smoother to fly. Uh, So they were just different types of helicopters. But as far as their role in the training world, they both work very, very well. The, the Squirrel uh, turned out to be a very good trainer and certainly an excellent air helicopter to fly any distance. I mean, I flew one from Canberra to Perth and it's so comfortable, it's smooth and that sort of stuff. So it's uh, it, different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which would you prefer? Well, it depends on what I was doing. Ah, uh, good answer. If I want to go, <laughs> to go out and move soldiers around, I want a Huey. If I want to fly across the country, I'd rather have a squirrel. Yeah, okay. It's just more comfortable to travel with. Uh, you end, how did you, what was the process of getting to Fort Ruckner and the Black Horse? Oh, Rucker. Oh, Rucker. Rucker, sorry. Well, uh, the decision was made in about the mid-80s that uh, we were going to replace our Hueys with Black Hawk, with the US Army uh, Black Hawk helicopter. Yep. And quite obviously there were going to be people going to Fort Rucker to learn how to fly the VU-860. And there were two of us selected, uh, uh, another fellow by the name of uh, um, Rob Ryder or Spider, as he's more commonly known, um, and myself. Um, and we were sent to Fort Rucker in, um, what would that be, the middle of, of 87? 80, 87, yep, 87. Yeah. Yeah. And we went over there to learn to fly the Black Hawk. Um, and so we spent uh, all up, I think, about five months in the US at different bases, primarily at Fort Rucker in Alabama, and we learned to fly the Black Hawk. And then when the Australian Black Hawk turned up, which was later that year or early the next year, uh, which was slightly different to the US Army one, but then we did the training. We were the two instructors that then began the training of the Australian, because it was an Air Force Nine Squadron got them, they were Air Force helicopters then, mm. the ones who did the training uh, for all the Air Force pilots that were going to fly it, yeah. And can you tell us, in a comparison again, what, what was significant about a Black Hawk? Well, if we go from the Huey to the Black Hawk, it's a giant leap. I, I, in the fighter world, it's like a Mirage to F-18. I mean, the technology change was just dramatic. Uh, I mean, the onboard systems, I mean, the Huey was a basic aircraft, but suddenly we've got this big, robust aeroplane that was designed by the US Army to work in the battlefield, but it's got onboard equipment that we hadn't seen. It had a type of autopilot 
The Blackhawks that we bought had an auto hover system. Uh, it could fly in cloud without any any problem. It could, it was certified for flight into moderate icing levels. Um, you know, just the advancements in it were just so so dramatic. And of course, it was a much bigger aircraft, a much more capable in in the weight it could carry, and 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 those types of things. Um, and then, if you put the external tanks on, it could go so much further. I mean, you could get almost. Uh, thousand miles out of it i mean i did eight hours in one one day which is a long yeah. time sitting in the yeah. helicopter yeah um so Just, uh, if, if i can interrupt mick gets to go back because you said something about clouds um yeah. i mean many times i've been in a plane and it's flown through clouds were helicopters pre the black hawk not meant to fly through cloud is that what no, not specifically. I mean, we flew through clouds in the Huey, there was no doubt. But there's all sorts of rules if you're going to be in cloud as to how much extra fuel you have to carry, what the environment can be in cloud, is there icing in the cloud? And the Huey just didn't meet those requirements, to be honest. Most of those more basic helicopters don't. It's got to have certain equipment on board, um, you know, maybe de-icing type equipment, it's got to have be able to carry a bit more fuel. It's got to have the right navigation aids on board. I mean, the Huey right. only had one navigation aid, and that limits your ability to fly around in cloud. So, but the Blackhawk had the extra navigation aids. It had de-icing systems. It was more. It was certified for flight in the cloud. And helicopters of today are. I mean, yeah, most uh, helicopters <laughs> today are because they all come with all these new. Um, equipments, sure, yeah, the, sure. the big ones, anyhow. Yeah. What were, what were your feelings about the uh, the army ending up with helicopters, not the air force? Well, I didn't like it, of course, because it had a, a, a significant impact on my career. Um, I I didn't like it. I I didn't necessarily agree with the uh, with the decision. I didn't quite understand the decision um, at the time. I didn't see why. I thought we were providing the service to the army units that they wanted. I mean, we were between five squadron, nine squadron, and thirty five squadron. We were covering the entire country um, yep. in providing service to the army. So, as as someone in a helicopter squadron at the time. I think I felt like most of us. We didn't think it was a good thing. And for some of us, it had a significant impact on our career as well. Sure, sure. You resigned in 1990. Uh, can you tell us why? Yeah, because of that. I mean, I was at the rank level that the the next step was, you know, staff college, and then my next uh, position probably would have been um, uh, competing for command of a flying squadron. Well, I hadn't flown anything apart from uh, instructing except helicopters. So I saw that as really limiting my opportunity to be commander of a squadron. I didn't particularly want to go back into the training system, like back to fly uh, uh, Mackies uh, into that system. So I saw it as really limiting. I mean, the other thing was I'd already been in the Air Force because I was an apprentice uh, over 20, well, over 20 years. Yeah, my... uh, my girls were at high school age, so it was probably time to think about a bit of stability and, and an opportunity came up for me to go to Newcastle. So okay. there were those combination things um, that uh, that really caused me to resign at the time. It wasn't that I didn't like the Air Force. It wasn't that I didn't want it or anything like that. I just saw my future as being fairly limited. Okay. Well, clearly you do like the, the Air Force yeah. because 11 years later you rejoined. Why? <laughs> Why? Well, there. Well, I went out, as you know, in that interim time, I, I continued to fly helicopters for a private helicopter company. And then I got to the stage, and in that company, I was one of their senior training people. Um, 
And I realised there was a young fellow that I'd trained to be uh, a pilot in that company. I realised I was getting older. I realised that my eyes weren't as good as they used to be. My brain didn't work as fast as it used to be. <laughs> and I thought, well, the last thing I want is to be that old fella flying around who they just put up with, you know, who everyone starts to talk about. And I thought, well, no, and if I've got to change, now's the time to change. And so what uh, What was I at that stage, about 50 or something like that? Um, and uh, another friend of mine who also flew for the same helicopter company, he said, have you seen the ad that the Air Force is looking for middle managers? Of course, that had such a big exodus of people in the 80s to the airlines. That hole, if you like, has moving through. And so I applied. Now, I'd been in the Air Force Reserve all that time, so my medical was still good, my security clearances, all that stuff was still good. So I applied to rejoin the Air Force, thinking that what I would do was go in and do staff work. And I figured, well, maybe it's the time of life that I'm ready to do that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, flying was what I liked doing, but I saw that as being a fairly limited option. So that's why I rejoined. I went back in uh, thinking, yes, this this will take me to uh, to retirement. Um, and, you know, uh, and away I did. So I did that. And, and, and because I'd been in the reserve all that time, getting back in was very easy. Yeah, there was no medical to do that. Uh, all that was all that was good. It was just a matter of a transference of paperwork, really, and it happened quite quickly. And it was a two eighty five squadron, wasn't it? Yeah, that's not where I went initially, but yes, uh, twelve months after I rejoined, that's where I went. Two eighty five squadron. Yeah. Uh, okay, but, but but then two thousand and six, you, you're out again. You well, leave again. I, I reached stage retirement. So the age, the age retirement then was uh, fifty five. And uh, I really had to go. So um, I'd done over three years as the CEO of 25 Squadron and um, I'd reached the age retirement again, 55. So I had to leave the permanent Air Force. Yeah, well, hang on. 2007, you're back in again. Aren't yeah, they? Well, they, well, they changed the rules. Yeah. Um, they changed the guidelines. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah. I left and, and, of course, I... The reason I left also is because I got involved in the company that I now own, you see, in that period. So leaving in 2006 and going to work with uh, the owner of the company that I now have was a good option, a semi-retirement type job. Yep. Um, but, of course, we're heavily involved in the Middle East uh, at that stage. Uh, and I'd spent all that time I got back into the Air Force at Richmond, uh, and I got to know a lot of the C-130 people and all that sort of stuff. So I, I offered, I volunteered. I said, if you need someone to go to the Middle East in one of these operations-type roles, I'm more than happy to do it. So and you it, ended up in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, I went to one base, and through that I ended up in Iraq and Afghanistan, yes. Yeah. So, so, yeah, in 2007, uh, Defence in Canberra contacted me and said, are you still interested I said, yeah, of course I am. I think it was seven, 2007. I said, yes, of course I am. But to do that, of course, I had to get back into the permanent air force again. But but at that stage, naturally, um, it, you know, they, they were having trouble filling some of these positions and um, and I was more than happy. So off I went and, and I did that again. And then, of course, when I came back um, and finished that period of whatever it was, seven or eight months, then I was back out again. So I was back in the permanent air force at that stage just to do that particular job in the Middle East. Yeah. When did the promotion to wing commander occur? 
Yeah, just after I got back from uh, from the Middle East. Just okay. after I got back. I'm not sure exactly the year, but it was just after I got back from the Middle East. So are, are you now saying to me that if Canberra rang you up and said, we have this job, we'd like you to rejoin the Air Force, would you say yes? Yeah, probably, yes. Oh, <laughs> I think a lot of us probably would. I mean, you'd have to look at the job. But, I mean, that was a job I'd asked to do, a job that I knew I could do. That one, It was like it was the senior operations officer. Sure. I mean, it had a different name, but that's really what it was. Um, So, Mick, it's finally 2018, and it happens to be April Fool's Day, the 1st of April. Uh, You are farewelled after 50 years. What did that feel like? uh, Yeah, a bit surreal. I was ready to go at that stage. Mind you, it had to be April Fool's Day because it couldn't be the next day because that was my birthday and I couldn't stay to my next birthday, if you know what I mean. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, I was ready to go, uh, put it that way. Um, I, of course, to get to that, I had an age extension, you know, by then I was, what, 67. Um, and, yeah, it, it was sad to leave. It, it, it was sad, and I've thought about it lots of times since, you know. Um, it, it was sad to leave. It was sad to, to you don't leave the memories behind, but you leave the people behind. There's no yeah, doubt. Sure, Things sure. had changed uh, a lot, though, um, and so I was ready to go. Oh, I was very pleased. I mean, obviously, all my kids were there, and and four of my apprentice mates were there as well yeah, at, at yeah. Richmond. So no, I was ready. I, I wasn't, you know, um, in great mourning or anything like that. I was ready. I was ready. Okay. To and, well, I, and I looked back and thought, well, I've done a pretty good job. I, think. I mate, you've done more than a pretty good job, Michael Stone from apprentice to wing commander in fifty years in the Royal Australian Air Force. You must and have every right to feel very proud for your contribution to one of the great institutions in Australia. So, look, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, I'm just amazed about resign, rejoin, resign, rejoin, resign, rejoin. That's a good story. Michael Stone, Mick, thank you for your time and congratulations. Thank you, Gareth. Been a pleasure. Globally, The RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.